there's a, there's a really mistaken notion in this country, probably all over the world, probably ever since humans were alive, that if I do well by one group, I'm therefore doing poorly by another. And that's, you know, that, that's like zero sum kind of thing, right? Like we have a pie that has infinite slices. If I give you one, I lose. And that's just really not true. You know, as we know, you can help all kinds of students and, you know, and, and, and you know, by elevating the success level of one student, it elevates the success of all students. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact in our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. And if I sound different today, it's because I'm recording directly into my computer at our headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts. So when my friend, colleague, and EL community contributor, Carol Selva, recommends that I reach out to a potential guest for the Highest Aspirations podcast, I listen carefully. She is a rock star. And her latest recommendation was actually someone whose work I've been familiar with for quite a while. I've read and shared many of the compelling articles she's written for the 74 and other publications. We have shared many of them on our weekly community brief that you can get if you are an Yale community member. Most recently, I picked up a copy of her book, The School I Deserve, and I read it cover to cover in just a few days. If you haven't put all those clues together yet, the guest I am referring to is Joe Napolitano, who spent nearly two decades reporting for the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, and Newsday before winning a Spencer Education Fellowship to Columbia University in 2016 in support of her reporting on immigrant youth. Her first book, which I just mentioned, The School I Deserve, Six Young Refugees and Their Fight for Equality in America, was published by Beacon Press in the spring of 2021, and I can tell you that it is a fantastic book and well worth the read. Napolitano has reported on many topics throughout her award-winning career, including crime and science, but education remains her primary focus, and for good reason. It was the only means through which she could escape poverty herself. Born in Bogota, Colombia, Napolitano was abandoned at a bus stop by her birth mother when she was just a day old. Placed in an orphanage, she nearly died of starvation before she was adopted by a blue-collar family from New York. She was raised by a single parent and is a first-generation college graduate, having earned her bachelor's from medal at Northwestern University. She believes no child's life should be left to chance. Joe and I covered a lot of ground in our conversation, but here are some of the essential questions that we tackled in this episode of Highest Aspirations. What are some flawed perceptions of immigrant and refugee students, and how can these impact the education they receive? What policies or district practices have been barriers to newcomer or immigrant students in receiving the full extent of education promised to them by law? How is moving students through the education system without adequate support or learning such a major missed opportunity for both them and their communities? We discuss these questions and much more with Joe Napolitano, and I want to thank Carol Selva again for recommending Joe uh, as a wonderful guest. Hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. Joe Napolitano, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you so much. I so appreciate uh, being asked to join you this morning. Yeah, you know, the first thing I want to say is we have shared so many of the articles that you've written for the 74 and other publications in our community brief. Um, I just read your most recent story on Ukraine. Maybe it's not most recent at this point, but it was pretty recent on Ukrainian refugees, which was amazing. So 
The first thing I want to tell you is on behalf of everybody here at Elevation and everybody who reads our brief and our entire Yale community, thank you so much for the great work that you're doing as a journalist and an author. I so appreciate that. It's wonderful to be noticed. And it's, it's literally, truly the highest honor to represent children who come from struggling parts of the world. Well, we're going to do what, what whatever we can to amplify uh, the work that you're doing. So let's let's get right into it. Um, I want to start off by talking a little bit about we'll ground our conversation and the why. I think you have a really interesting story that I've heard before in terms of kind of why you do that work, um, uh, much of which focuses on on education and equity. So tell us kind of your story of how you got into this and, and why you're involved. So do you mean my personal story? You do. You do you. However you want to do it. <laughs> So I don't know that I would have had as much of a focus on this had I not had, I've kind of wondered that over the years, but anyway, I am very interested in highlighting the talents and reminding people of the abilities and the potential of children who come from very impoverished parts of the world. They might come here as uh, refugees, unaccompanied minors, asylum seekers in some form or another. Um, they come from many different parts of the world, as we've seen recently with Afghanistan, Ukraine, Russia. We've been a long time, you know, it's been a long time that we've been receiving young immigrants from Mexico, Central America. And the reason that I'm so compelled to highlight their incredible talents is because I feel we often overlook, neglect, and just negate their unbelievable ability and really do not see the gifts that they bring us, the gifts that they are when they come into this country. And we just assume when we see someone with an incredibly impoverished start in life, the type of poverty that isn't really seen as much here in the United States, it's really hard for us to relate to that person or to believe that a person who comes from such a dire circumstance could actually have a tremendous amount to offer. The way I came upon that idea was through how I myself was born. So I was actually born in Bogota, Colombia, and was abandoned a day later by my birth mother, placed into an orphanage where I was very rarely fed um, and left me in a really bad condition. And right when I was probably not too short away from dying because I was like starving to death um, and my organs were shutting down, um, I was adopted by a very blue collar family from New York. They actually flew down to Colombia, got me, brought me to Long Island. And my mother has always told me that the family pediatrician that they had, because I had an older brother who was five years older, so he already had a pediatrician. My mother has told me that that doctor told her, don't get on the plane with this kid because she's in such bad condition. She's going to die on the way to New York City. And then you're going to like have a nervous breakdown. Um, so just don't go through with it. But my mother, you know, ignored him, brought me in this very fragile condition and fed me, you know, an incredibly dense Italian food. Um, and my friend calls it the meatball IV and really <laughs> brought me back to life, brought me to functioning. It's really funny because I was so emaciated when I got here. I only weighed, it was seven pounds at three and a half months old, um, which I, I don't have children. I never appreciated how, how emaciated that really is. But I looked it up for the book and children of that age, I believe are supposed to be at least 15 pounds. So it's mm. about half the body weight I should have been. Um, and so, you know, I gained so much weight that my nickname when I was a baby was butterball, like the turkey, because <laughs> I was like so well fed and thank God grew into, you know, a healthy child and, and a healthy adult. And I feel there is nothing, there are no coincidences. There's nothing that happens randomly, you know, something like that. I feel like, you know, because I was blessed with health, it was really upon me and I have taken up that challenge to try and represent kids coming from a similar situation and remind people all they can do. I mean, I went on to 
obviously I was a very successful high school student. I got a nearly full ride to Northwestern University, the top journalism school in the country. A few years ago, um, the Spencer Foundation at Columbia University paid me handsomely to attend Columbia University and paid for my tuition there so that I could write this book. Um, and the beginning of this book is actually called From Columbia to Columbia in 40 Short Years, meaning the country to the university. And so I really love challenging people's perceptions of what does an orphan look like? What does a dying orphan look like? What could that person do if given food, schooling, a home? You know, what, what potential could that child reach? And I would say most of us, you know, look at kids around the world in that condition and just assume, you know, that's, that's the best it's going to get for you. You're kind of like stuck in that for the remainder of your days on earth. Mm. And I just absolutely do not believe that has to be the case. It's a great story and a great backdrop to the rest of our conversation. Thank you for providing it. And and there are a lot of things, inspirational things that you said, most of which I actually read in the book um, as well. But the part that I couldn't get out of my head as you were speaking was, uh, and it doesn't really have much to do with multilingual learners as much as it has to do with the, the love of a mother, right? Who says, throws caution to the wind and says, I am bringing this child back. No matter what you say, doctor, I have some experience with that myself that I won't get into, but, uh, but a shout out to all the moms out there who, uh, who, who believe, um, that they can raise children, no matter kind of what, how they come into this world. So that, that's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. Um, oh, and so I talked about the book. I have it right here. I know folks can't see it, but I have my copy and I read it over the course of a couple of weeks. Um, and it was really phenomenal. I really appreciate uh, the the perspective that you had and the way that you kind of threaded it, uh, the characters in the story and, and kind of talked through it. So I want to spend not the characters, the real people in the story. Um, so I want to spend most of our time talking about that book, The School I Deserve. Um I, I thought it was super valuable insight on a topic that honestly can be really sensitive to anyone working in education, um, because there are a lot of things that are not really working um, still and certainly weren't working uh, when you wrote the book. One thread you explore is the perception um, of the U.S. versus the experience that refugees and immigrants have here. So I, I, I want to ask you, what has your work taught you about the power of these perceptions, right? About what they think it is and what it actually is and what we think it is and what it actually is. Um, and and what what you think we can do as as educators or our audience can do to kind of mitigate some of those effects of the perceptions. You know, it's so funny because I think there are a lot of people kind of in my world who would definitely are of the camp of, you know, America isn't what it says it's going to be. It hasn't done what it's supposed to do for, you know, immigrants and, and whatnot. And it's really easy, especially after the last political administration, to see a group so badly maligned, targeted, you know, literally held in our airports, not allowed to enter the country. There was a lot of really heightened xenophobia around that era. And it was really easy to lose faith in the promise of the United States. But I would definitely argue that a person like Khadija, the child at the heart of my book, who was in Sudan and who had heard of America's reputation in the far, far corners of Darfur, which I later learned was one of the most isolated places in the world. And that to me was so powerful that even in this incredibly isolated place, America had a reputation that she was fully well aware of. Mm. Um, and it's interesting, if you were to ask Khadija, did America live up to its reputation? She would say yes. And I really love that. You know, my mother is a very patriotic person um, and she had a hard time getting through the book because she felt it was kind of, you know, really held a spotlight up to and shown a light on the things that we're not doing. 
And I pointed out to her, I was like, you know, it's actually really hopeful. And America actually did live up to what it said it would. It had to go through a court proceeding in order for that to happen. But the judge heard the case fairly with an open mind, though he was a staunch conservative Republican. Um, he applied the law as it is in the books. You know, and so it's like, actually, I would say for me, who was dying in an orphanage in Columbia to come here and have an education at Columbia University, for Khadijah, who is running for her life from Darfur, Sudan to Chad, where she languished for 12 years in a refugee camp, and then to come here, she lives in a home with her husband. She is pregnant with her second baby. Amazing. She is plugging away at her college education, still a community college. And so, yes, a lot went wrong for Khadijah when she got here and for the other refugees who were kept out of our public schools. And, and for those who have permanently been kept out of the schools, there's just a complete breakdown, a complete failure. That's where the pain point is. And that's where we can do something about it. You know, when we make sure districts adhere to the laws in their state regarding um, compulsory education or regarding more so the, the, the oldest age for which you could attend high school. And what we've seen in places where there's been conflict is that um, the districts will mess with that. They'll say, well, yeah, you, you, know, you have a right to be here till you're 19, 20, 21, but you got to start the 10th grade at this age. You know, it's just like that's not a thing. You know, we, we don't turn away children because they are not at a particular age to start a great, you know, that is that is not the spirit of the law, nor is it the law, as we have discovered in a in multiple lawsuits in which districts that mess with that found themselves on the losing end. Right. You know, let's get into that for a second, because one thing in the book that you highlighted um, were some school districts that that I might call it these pockets of hope um, in places that are typically, you know, not very supportive of providing a high quality education or not known for, let's say, providing a high quality education for undocumented students or really providing any kind of service for undocumented students. But there are places in those areas that are doing a really good job. What what are these districts doing um, in such kind of inhospitable political climates that others can learn from in light of what you just mentioned about, um, you know, providing the services that these students need? Well, I would say, you know, just to, as a point of clarity, my book is about the Lancaster School District in particular. And interestingly about them, and I think this is something a lot of districts I think can relate to, they do a phenomenal job with younger kids, younger refugees and immigrants. Their problem is admitting older children, 8, 17, 18 years old, and putting them, assessing them correctly and putting them in the best environment. And I feel like a lot of districts probably see themselves in that. Like we've got phenomenal programs for our elementary kids, our middle school kids, our younger high school years. But when we get a child as much older, suddenly they're being pushed to night school. So, you know, so it's like, in other words, within the same district, I think you have a different mm -hmm. experience for these children based upon age. In terms of other districts, like um, the one in Maricopa County, Paradise Valley Schools, yep. which I really love, I went and visited them, spent some time with one of the women who's run that program, Rita Tantillo, just some really amazing people dedicated every day and what to, to bettering the lives of all of their students, including their, their children who are immigrants or ESL or multilingual learners. Um, what I think it, they had there, and I actually interviewed their school superintendent who has since retired. When I talked to him, he had just retired, I think maybe like a few months earlier, and he'd been there a really long time. And he made it just a, he did, he's a white guy, white older guy, and made it his mission 
to improve the lives truly of all students, but definitely with an eye on the kids who are multilingual learners because they had lagged so much and they just, you know, things were, they just were not getting what their need, what they needed. So he really focused on them and kind of, in my opinion, from what I've been told and what I saw there, kind of in a covert way. He didn't hold like big forums about it where he invited everyone in. What do you think about us, you know, making things more equitable? Because certainly in Joe Arpaio's Maricopa County, where Joe Arpaio was a sheriff who had a band of sometimes drunken people with him to harass Mm -hmm. immigrants in that county in a really infamous way. You know, that this is a district that serves that exact same community. Um, and they, they dedicated themselves to making things more equitable. And what they did there is they were like, okay, we've got 40 plus schools in this district. We've got some of them in very wealthy areas that are doing really, really well. We've got some of them in extremely impoverished, all immigrant areas that are doing really poorly. Can we just move around our resources within the district to give help where it's needed most? Sounds like a common sensey thing, but anyone who knows education or works in a school district is like, actually, that's a minefield, you know, because there's a, there's a really mistaken notion in this country, probably all over the world, probably ever since humans were alive, that if I do well by one group, I'm therefore doing poorly right. by another. Right. And that's, you know, that that's like zero sum kind of thing, right? Like we have a pie, it has infinite slices. If I give you one, I lose. And that's just really not true. You know, as we know, you can help all kinds of students and, you know, and, 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 you know, by elevating the success level of one student, it elevates the success of all students. Um, and so the superintendent had a keen eye toward that. And he looked, he had many different measures that he was looking at, you know, it's access, it's, you know, class size, it's curriculum, it's that, you know, he looked at all these different ways that they serve students and found ways where there was inequity and tried to fix it. Now, last I checked in with that district, I do kind of love them, Paradise Valley. Um, It didn't mean that immediately, this is something we really have to be mindful of, it didn't mean immediately the test scores and outcomes dramatically improved the very next year for this very population, you know, like, that's a very long-term goal that's going to have mixed results over time, but generally improve things, you know, improve the, I'm sure that they found probably more kids went on to college from this community than would have normally, you know, or would have in prior years, you know, so it's like things that are going to take time to reveal themselves. Um, And we have to be patient. We have to make a long-term investment in our children rather than just think, you know, we did this one year, it didn't work. Let's do everything. You switch it back, you know, we really can't operate like that, which is, I think, how we operate. It kind of reminds me how newspapers were funded. I used to work for the Chicago Tribune, which was profitable for a really long time, but it didn't make enough of a profit. So it had to be bought and sold and carved up and lost the building and blah, blah, blah. You know, now my old Tribune building is a con- are condos. Yeah, it's it, a classic it, story. <laughs> and it, bro- it breaks my heart. I can't even walk past the building when I do go to Chicago. It truly breaks my heart. But it's like, we were doing well, but not well enough, I guess, you know, by someone's made up metric. And so now the company is sliced and diced. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like we're looking at children and outcomes in a similar way. Like if we don't get this immediate push right away and then we failed, so let's go to it. It's like, that's not how we have to think about it. These are very long-term investments in children and and it's worth that investment because it will impact the rest of their lives, their husbands and wives' lives, their children's lives. Like all these people, Khadijah got married. She has two kids. Her education level impacts what her children will achieve, you know? So it's like what we're doing with these kids is it sets up a generational path. Now, her daughter, her first daughter is named Zainab. I called Zainab Dr. Zainab because Khadija is going to earn a master's and Dr. Zainab will earn a doctorate. And that's the expectation. Yep. So yep. it's like, and we really all believe that in the family. We're like, we, you know, education is the focus of this family. 
Yeah, it, I, I, the story that you were telling is exactly the one I was I was alluding to in the book because that was like this. There's just this, this pocket of hope, and if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. But you have to, you do have to think differently. And and you're right; it sounds easy and it sounds logical, but given the metrics that we're asked to kind of um, achieve in such a short period of time in education, it can be uh, difficult to do. But I really enjoyed um, reading about that, even though it wasn't the focus of the book. It was a great um, kind of side piece. Um, one thing that I, I want to talk about, because I'm sure that the students in the district that you just talked about felt this, particularly when they didn't have the support that they had under the superintendent and they had um, all of this madness going on and they were kind of being chased down, is this emotional burden, right, that that many immigrant students feel to protect not only themselves, but their families from from being outed as undocumented and illegal. I've had lots of conversations with with students who have had that I felt that burden and who have told me these incredible, really powerful stories um, on the podcast that have really almost brought me to tears. Give us an example of um, a law or policy that has that has had this effect, even if it was unintentional. This is something that you also explored in the in the book. I think of the state of Alabama, which enacted some of the most restrictive anti-immigration legislation. I want to say, oh, was it 2011 or 2014? It was a ways back, but it was the infamous crackdown on undocumented people. And it was meant to make the entire state inhospitable to them. The effect that it had was profound economically. So you had farm fields left to rot. You had construction jobs backed up for months. You had all the ways that our undocumented community often work within the community just go undone. You had children pulled out of school mid-year. Um, parents were terrified and they left. And you had principals and teachers who saw half their classrooms empty. Mm. It is an incredible betrayal of trust because as we know through a 1981 Plyler v. Doe court decision, undocumented children have a right to attend school in this country, full stop you know, until they age out of whenever that is. But there, the, you know, the trust was really broken. It was terrifying and it was meant to be. Um, it was meant to send this message that we don't want you here and you need to get out. So our immigration policies have a direct impact on, on kids' education, of course. And when you have a worry like that all the time, you know, and also, by the way, most of those children were born in the United States, are, yeah. unlike me, and are, are absolutely born citizens. Unlike me, I had to become a citizen when I was four years old. Um, but anyway, so we're, you know, infringing on and hurting the education of these kids. And it's just so tragic to me because of the incredible legacy that that will leave. You know, we make it so hard for these children to succeed unnecessarily, you know, and, and, and that is unacceptable. And I think if you did that to any other group of children, there would be a far greater outcry. Great but point. we have somehow determined in this country you know, all the kids who are kept in cages look exactly like me. You know, they, we have made it, it is okay to do some of these really more horrific things to only one group of kids in the nation right now. Mm. You know, you talk about um, Alabama as an example. And, you know, when we think about Alabama, we're not talking about major urban or we're not thinking, or at least I'm not thinking about major urban centers, which brings me to my next question. You know, it used to be that the majority of newcomers, um, including like my own family and my, my father, emigrated from Greece, flocked to uh, to urban centers. Um, and a lot of these cities were kind of prepared and are, continue to be prepared to receive them, um, you know, in, in very with varying degrees. But that's changed in a lot of places. We're seeing that at Elevation where we serve, you know, uh, English learners from around the country. Um, when I was sort of on the uh, when I was sort of when I was on the training team, I was traveling around. And one of the places that I went quite a bit was actually was Alabama. And I would go to these rural districts and I would 
help these teachers and these like th- these little pockets, right? This like these like multilingual learner specialists who are working in again like kind of inhospitable climates. It wasn't 2011 or 2014. It was just you know the last four or five years. Um, I, I saw them doing this amazing work, but their job was difficult because they had to not only teach content teachers who maybe have been there 20 or 30 years how to work with students that they had not worked with before, um, but they also had to convince them that that was part of their their job. So my question for you is, um, it, from your perspective, I saw it from mine, um, how well are schools in these types of areas um, prepared to serve multilingual learners, immigrants, and what challenges do newcomer students face in these places, aside from what you just talked about in terms of the, just the, um, you know, the, the, the dreadful policies that were in place? So I think that, you know, ESL teachers, it's like a, a probably well-known secret, are my favorite of all teachers. My um, they, they're just so special and patient. And, you know, they sit in the classroom with children who don't talk for a year, the silent year where the kids are just observing, they're terrified to make a mistake and sound foolish in front of their peers. And so, you know, it, and whenever you spend time inside a multilingual learner classroom, or ESL classroom, it's such a special place. I feel like it is like, one of the most loving places inside any class. It's yeah. just such, you know, such a, you know, teachers just teaching from the heart and kids who are just in such a vulnerable position. You know, they're really, they're vulnerable to policies. They're vulnerable because they don't speak the language. They're vulnerable because they're trying to learn a new culture and like, forget like what's cool. What I should, what should I be wearing? What should I be saying? It's like, you were just, you know, a stranger in a strange land, truly. And it's just a really difficult place to be in. So I feel like in those, you know, places, the ESL community, you know, teachers, I would say, I would think like do a really good job kind of in the, in the little bubble of their classroom, Mm -hmm. but going once that child, and, and as we know, our policies nationwide are really different. Like, do we keep our multilingual learners together all day? Do we give them constant English instruction? You know, some schools are neglecting their core subject matter learning. They should also be learning science, math, history, you know, all that other stuff. And that brings us to outside the, the multilingual learner classroom. When that same kid who just got here from Sudan, who does not even know how to say my name is Khadija, ends up in your math class, we have to get rid of the notion that it's okay to look at that child day after day who is not participating, who's sitting silently, who clearly doesn't understand, and just ignore that child and just feel that it is not my job as a you know pre-calculus teacher to make my material known to a child who got here an hour and a half ago from Sudan. But in fact, it is because we are supposed to be teaching all children and we use hand gestures, photographs. I mean, the people who are hearing this are like, you know, have master's degrees in education. I don't. So they know how to do this or definitely need to be trained in how to do this. Mm -hmm. I mean, our multilingual community is very large. I think it's more than 5 million kids, about 10% of all of our kids in the country. Right. That's a lot of children. And so, and as you indicated, they're almost everywhere, you know? And so I feel like everybody needs to be trained to serve this child. Of course, all of these kids, you know, and, and I, I know there's a lot of resistance to that. Um, And, you know, teachers are just like, look, I've got, you know, I'm doing more with a lot less money. I don't need to have the help I need to even teach my subject matter. We don't have the money to buy the equipment we need, but, you know, but yet I would also push back on that and say, you probably have it now. Post COVID, there's probably a lot more of that. That pie just got a lot bigger. We've yeah, you know? we've actually we've talked a lot about. I just interviewed a couple of folks from TNTP about ESSER funds and the fact that there are. I think the number. Don't quote me, but I think the number was they found that there are seven million uh, multilingual learners in school districts that were not using ESSER funds to support that particular demographic. So 100 percent right about that. 
Yeah, so it's kind of like if we, we may have an opportunity now to make sure those funds are helping all of our kids, you know, including, of course, you know, we have to stop thinking of, of and this is, I hear this a lot from the ESL teaching community. Other teachers or principals will say to a multilingual learner teacher, ESL teacher, your students, your kids are in my classroom. Your kids, are, they need help from your, and, and the, I've had teachers push back. My friend, Veronica Calderon, who's in my book, has said, oh no, darling, they are not my students. They are the district students. So when they're in your classroom, they are in fact your students. And so this, this nonsense of, you know, children who are learning who are in the ESL community in some way or another are somehow, they're very othered. It's like they're from a different universe and they're not everyone's responsibility when of course they are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. And that's, that's the thing. That's one of the things that we're working on all the time. And it's, it's tough, you know, because you talk about the training and there is a lack of training. You mentioned master's degrees in education. I have one. I, I didn't, I have two actually, and I was not really given any special uh, or I, I was given the option of taking courses in, in multilingual education, but it wasn't a part of the curriculum. That was a while ago now. So things have changed delightfully. Not that much. <laughs> Not that yeah. much, right? And but then there's the idea of professional development, right? Like, how do you deploy high quality professional development that is accessible, job embedded, sustained, etc.? That's that's tricky. Um, and uh, but it's something that I think that we're seeing some innovation in, and there's some hope, and that along with the funding streams that you talked about, um, will hopefully be uh, be helpful. Um, I'm I'm skipping around a little bit because I'm kind of like you I I have a list of questions but now I'm I'm thinking more about this idea of what it's like um for a multilingual learner in sort of a content area classroom and you know I was a high school teacher for a long time 17 years I taught high school Spanish um and one of the things that always made me really uncomfortable was the connection and sometimes the lack of connection between learning and grades um, I saw it all the time. Um, there was, you know, a piece of paper that you had to kind of vomit your information out on. And once you did that and you got a grade, you had learned, I'm putting quotes in the air for those who are listening, and you move on. I, I saw a big connection to that in your book. As you describe in the book, the, the refugees coming to this country are eager to learn. And I've seen that as a teacher myself. The vast majority of them are eager to learn. That is why they are here. That is why if they're with their families, their families are here. But there's a discrepancy between the value of learning versus kind of rapidly progressing through grade levels as kind of a means to an end. And that was something that, you know, uh, you, you profiled in the book and I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed it, but I was also kind of horrified by some of the things that I read. Tell us more about your observations around this topic and how it affects students who are motivated by true learning. And this kind of connects with the idea of you're going to age out. So we got to get you to where you need to be. I mean, I feel, you know, I could talk about what happened in the case of the kids in Lancaster. So they were put in a, in, within the school district of Lancaster in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, they were put into an outsourced for-profit um, school called Phoenix Academy that was not run by the district. So it was part of the district, but run by like an, an outside for-profit group. The kids, and it was called an accelerated program. So, but that doesn't mean, you know, how you and I might think of accelerate, like advanced right. placement, IB. It meant it was faster. And so this may, and I can't dispute this or not, this may have been a good environment for native English speakers who, you know, maybe had a limited time before themselves, they aged out or they really wanted to get into the workforce. Some students were pregnant, you know, and they kind of needed to expedite their learning. And so, and for, I know some parents were quite happy to have this option, um, which was like a bare bones education, not, you know, focused on anything other than what you needed to get a high school diploma. 
the problem with putting obviously refugees who did not speak a word of English in the accelerated environment where, you know, an enormous amount of material was meant to be understood and taught and absorbed in a finite amount of time was that the kids didn't speak any English. Mm-hmm. So we had kids in that, in those classrooms. I think what broke my heart when they talked talked on the witness stand later um, was we had kids in classrooms that could not name the class and they'd yeah. been there for months and I cannot name the class I'm in other than math. I know I'm in math. The rest of it, no idea. We had a child in the book who did not know he was in the 12th grade and was quite surprised when he graduated. Ugh. You know, it, 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 that I'd say there's several points in the book that just blew my mind. That was one of them. And I was like, what is wrong with this kid that he didn't know he was in the 12th grade or that he was graduating? Well, as he explained to the judge, which made a lot of sense, his classes had students from varying grades. There were 10th graders, 11th graders, 12th graders in some of his classes. So he did not realize he was in the 12th grade. The day they handed him a diploma and put it in his hand, he was still not understanding that he couldn't come back to school, you know, that he was graduating that day. And so it's, you know, what happened there was such a miscarriage of what should have happened with these kids' education. The thing about education we have to remember is that it is finite, we have a finite period of our lives that we're eligible for a free public education. Once we put these kids out in the world with denying them that, they are set back. It's like they're in the Stone Age with what they know and what they can do. The, 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 they are in chains after mm-hmm. that. It is really a missed opportunity. Um, so I'm sorry. I don't know that I answered your question. If you want to remind me again of what the main of it was no i think you got into it and i think my next question is kind of the follow-up piece that will kind of allow us to get a little bit more specific on it i mean you know at the heart of the 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 story of the refugees you profile in the book is the distinction between two high schools in the same district and their ability to provide a high quality education to all students you quote a teacher from the district who said the refugee kids at mccaskey were thriving the refugees at phoenix were in survival mode I mean, there's so much to explore in that statement. This is the same district. I believe Phoenix is the one that you said was outsourced. Um, but but start by talking about why some students were able to attend a school that met their needs and others weren't. And to what extent is that happening in other places? So Khadijah's family is a great case study because we had Khadijah who came to the district at 18. We had her younger sister, Nora Sham, who I want to say was 15 or 16. And then we had four other little siblings. And the way that everyone else other than Khadijah was treated was excellent. You know, the kids were enrolled in school, they were assessed, they were put in the appropriate grade, they were given the language supports they need, they were thriving. And it was so interesting to watch this family because the little kids, as we all know, anyone who's worked with people learning learning any language, the little kids picked it up in about an hour and a half. Like mm-hmm. within three months, they were conversational. It was like, oh my God. Yeah. Meanwhile, Khadijah at 18, really struggled. So she wasn't put in school for several months, which is a huge violation of her rights, wasn't put in school for several months, and then was put in this outsourced Phoenix Academy where very little, little, you know, effort was made to see that she learns English properly. And she had a good English teacher, ESL teacher, but outside of that, there was no effort made, no Google Translate, no hand gestures, no call-in translation services, no photos used, just you know, and that, of course, is according to Khadijah's court testimony. The district claims some of those things were done or offered. The fact that Khadijah left completely illiterate would, would suggest, and Khadijah's an extremely ambitious, intelligent person, and she, you know, couldn't understand basics of English, would reflect that that is not the case, you know. So, and then, of course, when she was finally placed in the correct high school, she did great. You know, so it's like, obviously, there was a major difference between what was happening at Phoenix Academy, what was happening at McCaskey. So yeah, there, you know, we are, whenever we fail to serve these children, there's a huge missed opportunity. And with the kids at the heart of my book, 
they were being, you know, pushed through. Khadijah, I believe it was Khadijah, who was number one in her class, according to this great yeah. like complete insanity. You know, like what measure are we using? What is what is happening? This girl cannot have a conversation. And she's been in your program for months. You know, so it's like, you know, really, there there can be a huge disconnect. When, when we are determined not to serve these students, when we treat them like hot potatoes, when we push them to night school, adult education, to the fringes of the public education system because we don't want to deal with them, we are failing them, not just failing them, we are, we are hurting them in an irreparable way. I mean, that's the thing is irreparable harm is done when we deny a child an education. Um, and a child like Khadijah, who is just such an incredibly diligent kid, you know, she's still plugging away at community college. And, and the thing there is some people might say, well, she made it to community college, everything's fine. She has been paying money, dollars, actual money out of pocket for community college mostly in ESL classes, mm -hmm. because as we know, when we push kids out and they get to the college level and they don't speak English, that's actually the start. That's what their focus is for a very long time, which is why most drop out because they don't get to their core material. And she wants to be a nurse. It took her years to take a class in nursing there because you can't be a nurse if you don't speak English. Right. And so that onus was put on her, that, that fund, that money, is being put on her. Meanwhile, she was she deserved a free quality education. And in fact, as the as my conservative Republican judge pointed out, had Khadijah been put at the in ninth grade when she arrived, she would have been able to complete four full years of high school before aging out at 21. Yeah. So and it's like, and once we graduate these kids, here's another fun fact for the kids we do kind of screw over in this way. Once we graduate these kids, we can't then put them back. You graduated, you are done. There is no, you don't, I mean, even if they graduated high school in their home countries, if you graduated from high school in El Salvador and you come here to try and get education, that's not a thing. You graduated. And here in my country too, you can, know, in the United States too, you can't go to school having graduated. So it's over. Right. You know what I'm saying? And that's the heartbreaking finite part to me. It's like, this was done. There is no way to get that time back, those years back, the education she deserved back. That is over. And that is why I'm so compelled to keep telling the story and to make people feel the void of her missing years of education to which she was entitled. Yeah, it's a great point. You're talking not only about the specific, um, you know, stories of of people like Khadijah, but also that it's really the impact on our economy. And you talk about nursing. I mean, that's a we could probably use more nurses, right? To, especially ones that are really excited to get in the field and get to work. And um, you think you think we could use a nurse who speaks Arabic? I think so. I think so. You think we could use that, or in a large community that has a lot of a lot of Sudanese people, a nurse that speaks four, the language spoken in Darfur, Sudan. I mean, I, to, I mean, I tell Khadijah all the time, I hate needles. I'm like paranoid of needles. But I tell her the day she becomes a nurse, she will be my nurse, and I will go to her every day. Like, <laughs> Khadijah is such an incredibly bright child. And there's a, I don't know if I put this in the book or not. I can't remember. I think I did. But when Khadijah was finally put in the right high school, in the right guidance with wonderful teachers, wonderful, 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 incredible teachers, dedicated, and she got to take some nursing courses at the high school level, she was so diligent that, you know, she had to remember, she had to know the muscles in the human body, she, and which are very complex. I, with my Northwestern degree and my Columbia Fellowship, I've never heard of these muscles. I've never heard of them in my life. There are 15 you know, letters long for each of the muscles. She has to know which ones they are. She would retake those tests, just simply naming the muscles over and over and over until she got 100 mm -hmm. every time. I mean, she would get an 80, she'd get a 90. No, she's not living until she gets 100. 
when she was tasked with undressing a dummy, like a mannequin, which is something you have to do if you work in nursing, you have to modestly undress a patient and learn how to do that, respecting their privacy. She was told by her teacher, look, Khadija, you have to only do it to one half of the body because, you know, we got a class to move on with. And <laughs> as soon as you're able to do that, I can check it off and we're done. And Khadija's answer was that to that was, no, I'm going to do it to the full body because when I am in a hospital and I'm dealing with a patient, I'm not going to undress half a patient. Yeah. I mean, this kid is like, holy Jesus, like this kid really is just unbelievable. And we were keeping her out. Right. You know, we can't. Khadija smart said that's just not true. And that, that's not the kind of student you want to rush through high school. That's not the kind of student where you want to give a grade that really means nothing to learning for. And there are so many examples of that. Um, you know, I, I have I have one more question for you that I, that I or one more topic that I want to address, because I think it's really important. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention this. And that's the trauma that many of these or most of these students are are dealing with. I mean, this has effects not just on behavior, but as you point out in the book, cognition, memory, processing, et cetera. Uh, all this makes it difficult, if not impossible, to learn at the beginning. And yet the students profiled in your book are expected to, and often, according to the school, to learn at an accelerated pace, which we've discussed. I, I mean, this is a topic that we could talk about for hours on end, but just like high level what have you seen or what strategies need to be in place um, in order to address that trauma so that we can promote learning? It's so funny because the the Lancaster School District in the way they treated the immigrants at the, or the refugees at the heart of my book, it was so bad that the idea of addressing their trauma didn't even come up. You know, it was just like not even the luxury of having them talk about what happened or acknowledging that and really consider that and the way they were treated. I mean, it, 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 I mean it's shock, It's stunning. It's, it, it just was not, <laughs> not even thought of it. They couldn't even get registered in the school, you know? So I feel like, you know, we, we know anyone who's studied trauma that when a child's brain is so focused on the pain and of what they've experienced that the part of their brain that should be open to learning is shut down. Mm -hmm. So it just makes it, it's like a, you know, a sink that's been turned off. You know, they just can't, that knowledge can't break through. It's so incredibly difficult, you know, and I know that the people listening to this have, you know, a phenomenal education in education and know better than I what to, what to keep in mind. But I definitely think from what I've read and what I've written and what I've observed, keeping that up top of mind, keeping that is like, you know, this kid has really been through a lot and maybe a little, if they feel a little distant, if they feel a little cold. I mean, one of the, at the heart of my book, there's a student who tried to enroll in school and the man who was attempting to enroll him and Jacques Blackman said that the kid had an attitude and he got up from the table and he walked away. And the kid was like, yeah, after he fought me for a very long time about yeah. whether I could enroll in the school or not. And so in the book, there's a discussion like, do you not think that a child who has fled a war zone you know, it provoked, he wasn't unprovoked, provoked, could get up and leave a table in a conversation because he's so frustrated. Yeah. That's not within the realm of acceptable behavior for a kid who has lived in, you know, as a refugee for almost all of his life. You know, so I feel like, you know, more than understanding trauma, which is a very important, but treat these kids like your own. That is really what it is. We have to show humanity to all of our children, whether they were born here and they got off the Mayflower 500 whatever years ago, or they got here an hour and a half ago. They are our children in our country. They are worth our time, our investment, and our love, every single one of them. And so if you know your own child has been through a difficult experience and you want other adults to be sensitive to that, 
Think of these as your children who have been through experiences that would make an adult crumble, Mm -hmm. yet they are still here and they are trying to learn and keep that in mind with them. I honestly can't think of a better way to sort of conclude this great conversation with that. So I'll ask you uh, one more question because I'm sure there are a lot of people who are really curious about the book and about the work you're doing in general. Um, how can people learn more about it or get the book? Again, it's the school I deserve. I have it here. I've read it. It's got a lot of notes in it. You just talked about a part where where there was an issue between that student and that particular um, school official that made me so angry reading it, but it was worth every moment of reading it because it just reminds you that this is happening. We need to fix it. So how can people learn more? So definitely follow me on Twitter. I'm Joe underscore Napolitano. Um, And I work currently at the 74 million, and that's a relatively new education news site run by my mentor at the New York Times. I used to write for the New York Times, Chicago Tribune and Newsday. I worked there for years at each one of those publications. The 74 is run by my old boss at the New York Times, whom I absolutely adore. Um, And it's got a lot of great writers writing for it. I have written a story recently about how children from Afghanistan are thriving in American schools, including girls who in their home country were often discouraged from attending school at a certain age, kept out. They're doing really, really well here. Um, So I write a lot about this issue. I actually, my company, the 74 flew me out to Tijuana, Mexico to catch up with Ukrainian and Russian refugees coming across the border. Um, and so that's where my work appears these days. And the 74 often partners with other news organizations. So that story about Ukraine and Russia actually appeared in the Guardian newspaper, along with a video I took inside the camp where they were staying in Tijuana. So that's probably the best way to keep in touch with me. Um, you know, send me a message on Twitter. You're able to do that if, a, if you know of a district that's following policies really well or not following policies. And, you know, that's something I'm happy to follow up with, um, you know, we can all you know, work together to make sure all of our kids get the school they deserve, the education they deserve in this country. Great. Well, thanks for sharing all that. Just, I mean, I will just to set it at the beginning. I'll say it at the end here, the work that you're doing for the 74, I read pretty much every article that you get. I'm on their little newsletter. So I get the email every day um, and it's really great stuff. And the, and the organization in general is really putting out doing some great work. So I'd highly recommend that as well. Obviously, I'd recommend the book. And um, I want to thank you so much, Joe Napolitano, for your time. It's been really a great, inspiring conversation, and I look forward to more collaboration in the future. I so appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.